I'll open your Bibles to Acts 20, 1 through 16. We are advancing. Do you realize that uh, today and next week we will be done with the third missionary journey? So we've gone through the second and third missionary journey, um, and I'm excited, really excited, uh, well, of coming to the end. I like finishing things, certainly, but I'm excited for how God has used this already in our lives. Uh, And I'm excited for, Nancy said something to me the other day. She says, I've never seen you this uh, lively, energetic at this time of the year. Usually before vacation, I'm crawling. I'm like, please, please, uh, cannot wait to take vacation. I actually feel pretty good right now, so watch out. And I've got next week still yet. And then we'll take a little breather. Not you, not the church, but we as a Hatton family are going to take a little breather because uh, we want the summer to be for all of us a time that God actually refreshes us and restores us and renews us. We, we like the seasons in life. We like what summer is for. And we like what the fall is for. And we like what the spring is for. But there is a season and a time for everything. And, and the summer is a great time to get recharged. It's a great time to develop relationships, great time to have people over to your house. Just have them over. Get to know people, build relationships with people. A great time to have extended times of reading the scriptures and picking a good book, like the marriage book we're all doing. Get together with other folks and and dive into the deeper realities of what it means to believe in Jesus in your life and in your marriage and your relationships and your work. This is the season, this is the time to do it, okay? Just a little encouragement. All right, this past week, there was a worldwide panic. Did you realize that? It was terrible, it was tragic. It was so harrowing that the website for the London newspaper, The Guardian, started a live blog and was giving second-by-second updates about this. Do you know what this was? You don't know what the worldwide panic was? It didn't affect y'all? Oh, come on. What happened, you asked? Well, on Thursday, Facebook experienced a worldwide outage. (laughs) It went off the grid. Evidently, it was in the wee morning hours for the United States, but over in England, it was from 5 to 6 o'clock around that range. Uh, So it sent a panic. It sent a social media crisis unlike the world has ever seen. That's right. How long was this tragic global outrage? How long was this outage? How long did the power go off the grid with Facebook? It sent historic records, painful, painful historic records. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. We all know Facebook has changed the world, right? Facebook has changed you. It hasn't changed me because I don't do Facebook, right? But it's changed you because I have no desire to stalk you. I have no desire to know what you have for breakfast. I have no desire to get involved in the drama of you breaking your nail. I have no desire whatsoever to be involved in that kind of stuff. So Facebook has changed you. It hasn't changed me, but it affects me because it affects my family. So in other words, Facebook changes the way everyone relates to each other, doesn't it? It has. And I don't even want to get into a debate over whether it was a good change or a bad change because I really don't care. I don't. If you have strong opinions, keep them to yourself because it really doesn't matter. Um, The point is this. Facebook has changed us. Right? It has. (laughs) Today's passage is also designed to change us, but in a much more colorful way, in a much more penetrating way. 
in a much more reaching way, in a much more transformative way, in a much more real way. After electric football, G.I. Joes, and army men, in that order, on my all-time toy list, fourth on that list, besides those, is Light Bright. Do y'all remember that? Who knows Light Bright? Come on. Oh, I'm so glad. All right. Do you remember what you had to do? If you didn't, I'm really, really shocked. You have to turn off all the lights in the room. You plug your little plastic box that has a little bulb inside. You turn it on, and it's, it's like a spotlight. And then you take the, plastic, I mean the, the black paper that has the white dots with designs on it, and you slip it in the light bright, right? And now it's shining behind it, so it's muffled. It's dark. It still looks dark around the room. And then you take the magical colored pegs, and you put them in the white dots. And the room explodes with light. Bright colors. And you keep going. By the time you're done, you have the shape of dazzling colors before your very eyes. We need color-charged pegs pushed into our lives. Do you realize that? I mean, there's marriage. And then there's a color-charged marriage. Oh, there's careers, and there's hard work, and there's the pursuit of excellence, and then there's color-charged careers. I mean, there's good food. There's fast cars. There's a sunset, and then there's color-charged sunsets. I want to welcome you to a color-charged story called Saving Eutychus. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Acts 21 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. 
And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead of the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day, opposite of Chios. The next day we touched Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, O oh Lord, we ask for your spirit uh, to enable us, to empower us, to hear, to open our hearts and open our minds, to do a work that we cannot do for ourselves, which is actually uh, see the wonders here, savor the wonders here, treasure the wonders here, be changed by the wonders here. Uh, this is your great work, Jesus, and we acknowledge that this is your work. And we ask by the power of your spirit to do it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is an odd story, is it not? I mean, come on. This past Tuesday at 12 a.m., I began my sermon prep for the week, which is what I usually do. Um, Tuesdays, usually around 12, I'll spend five hours doing text work. On Fridays, usually around 12-ish, I start doing the sermon work. Um, so on Tuesday, I read the text, I flip open my laptop, I start typing my first notes on the page. This is what I type. Why is the story of Eucatechus here? Why is this here? Phil Campbell, an Australian pastor and author, asks, is the story of Eutychus proof that some people would rather die than listen to an overlong sermon? <laughs> or maybe it's a warning to preachers. If you lack Paul's apostolic gifts, keep your people awake at all costs, right? I could, we could add other reasons. We could add the reasons, but this is proof positive that Apollos is a better preacher than Paul, Right? Uh, we could add the reason, uh, a warning to all you dozing slackers out there, and I know who you are. I see you every Sunday. You don't think I do, right? It could be a warning to you. Do you realize that in Qumran community, which was a, uh, a separated community of really super religious people that really wanted, it began before Jesus, and it kind of moved into Jesus' time, but it was fading away by then. But they were very, very committed religious people. They, they wanted to obey the law of God perfectly, and then a bunch of laws they made up as well. Uh, they wanted to separate themselves. They were the original M. Night Shalomans, the village. They separated themselves from all sinners because they didn't want to be tainted by sinners, and they wanted to live pure, holy lives, perfect conformity to the law of God. Because in doing so, in covenant obedience, they'll bring in the Messiah, right? Do you know what they said? Members were excluded from meetings for 30 days for falling asleep. So maybe, you know, the message here is, you know, watch out, slackers, right? Maybe the warning is to boring preaching and boring preachers. I mean, if, if, if preachers are monotone and unmoved by what they say and they just read the text and stand up here and just talk like this for 40 minutes. I mean, I feel sorry for everybody, right? 
Preaching should never be boring, especially to the preacher. Is it a warning to worship leaders and facility managers? Bob, where are you? Pay attention to this, brother. Uh, are we supposed to pay attention to the worship culture and atmosphere that we're creating? Is that the warning? For instance, never do a midnight service. Never. I mean, you're just asking for sleep. Uh, hot and stuffy kills. Be very, very aware. Hot and stuffy kills. We've got to make sure that AC is going because it can kill me, believe me. Um, lots of oily candle lights. I mean, you got the... You got the the soothing smell of the candles. You got the warm glow, flickering, warm light of the candles. The poor kid didn't have a chance, right? All right. Why is the story of Eutychus, or whatever his name is, here? Here's what's happening. The Apostle Paul is sprinting through the Aegean Sea. Do you see that? It's a sprint. In verses one through six, we have the Greek cities on one side or on the western side, the left side. You have the Asian cities on the other. He's a city there. He's a city here, day here, day there. He's on the move. He's constantly moving. Why is Paul doing this? Why is he sprinting? It hasn't been a sprint so far, but now he's sprinting. It's almost like he has, something's happened to him or he, is, he has set himself in a certain direction. Scholars all mark this out. They say it's almost like Jesus, he sets himself for Jerusalem. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Remember when he was in Ephesus? Remember in chapter 19, he felt deep in his bones that he had to go to Jerusalem and to Rome and he had to get there. In fact, he said in that verse, I must go. It's not like I'd like to go. It's not like, you know, I, I hope to go. It's, it's a divine compulsion, calling, I gotta go. And so what we have here is Luke is documenting a ministry sprint to Jerusalem, and in the middle of a ministry sprint, you have this odd pause the story of Eutychus. Why this story? You know why this story? Because this story is the final, ultimate visual, visual summary of what Paul's ministry is all about. You want to know what Paul's all about? Here it is. You want to know what he does? Here it is. You want to know what life is all about? Here it is. You want the color-charged peg pushed into your life? Here it is. It's about experiencing the life of the resurrection. Verse 9 and 10. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. That's the main point. That's the big idea. What's the big idea? The big idea of this story is this is the life of the resurrection. 
We are meant, and all of life is meant to experience the life of the resurrection. This is the color peg that gets pushed into your marriage. If the life of the resurrection isn't operating in your marriage, it's just a black piece of paper on a light bright waiting for color it doesn't have right now. If you don't have the life of the resurrection right now operating in your career and the way you work and the way you, you excel and the way you are driven, the way you give up, it's just a career. It's just a career on a black sheet of paper. And you're bored to tears, aren't you? I mean, why do we get so bored and why do we get so disgruntled? And why? Because we have no color pegs pushed into those areas. That's why. All right, so what does experiencing the life of the resurrection look like in our lives? That's a fair question. I mean, I want to know what it looks like. So what does it look like? When the life of the resurrection is present in your life, when the color gets pushed into your life, what does it look like? It's there and you say, there it is. This is what it's supposed to be. I think it's a fair question. You know what Luke is saying it looks like? The apostle Paul. In Acts, Luke is intentionally highlighting Paul as the model man, the restored man, the ministry man. What being a human being <laughs> looks like. So what, what, what does the Christian life look like? What's a colorful Christian life look like, Luke says, Paul? Okay, okay. Well, what does it look like to be godly and holy and grow in grace, Luke says, Paul? Okay, so what does it mean to have the gospel? What does it mean for you and me to actually believe the gospel in real time and in a real way in all areas of our life, Paul? Okay, well, what does it mean to be weak and to struggle to be involved in a gutsy grace Christianity, to be weak in such a way that the power of God is just poured into your weakness over and over again. Luke says, Paul. What does a preacher look like? Paul. What does a pastor look like? A shepherd, a a spiritual leader, an elder in the church, a servant, a deacon, any kind of person that does ministry in the church, Paul. In this passage, experiencing the life of the resurrection is looking at Paul. And here's the first thing we see about Paul. He is an encourager. The resurrected life is operating in you and me, you are an encourager. If you're not an encourager, it's a wake-up call. If you're a, a dour, critical person, it's a wake-up call. Look at this. Encouragers are way beyond personality types. Because Some of you are saying, well, I'm not that cheerleading type. I, I'm not Tony Robbins. I'm not either. Thank the Lord. Personalities are not the issue here. Duty's not the issue here. Encouraging is not about doing it because it's the good Christian thing to do, and it's not about doing it because you, you have to. Encouragement in this text is grounded fundamentally in the human heart. Encouragement comes from a heart that's encouraged. 
Look at 20, chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. I mean, this is, y'all, this is absolutely incredible. His life was on the line in that uproar. He's the one they were coming after. He's the one they wanted to drag in front of 25,000 people that they would not have been able to hold back. He's the one that sparked it all. It was his ministry that was changing lives and changing hearts. And he's thinking about them. I gotta go talk to them. I know they're upset. I know they're, I know they need encouragement. 20, verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Do you know what encouragement means? Do you know what it is? It's to instill cheer. It's to instill happy heart. It's to instill courage and comfort. It's to instill it in your person, in who you are. It's like your, your life and your person is encouraging. You, you walk into a room, you interact with people, and you instill courage into them, and you instill heart into them, and you instill cheer into them. And it comes from, in this context, because it's used over and over and over again, words. Words that have cheer and comfort and courage in them. Gospel words. The picture is taking a cold heart in your hand and to encourage it is to warm it up. Make it come alive again. Encouragement, being encouraged, is experiencing a mini resurrection. When you encourage somebody, you are involved in resurrection work. They come alive again. So it makes sense that those who are experiencing the life of the resurrection would love to participate in many, many resurrections in others. It's what resurrection life does. Encouragers don't spend a lot of time thinking about themselves. They spend most of their time thinking about other people because they know someone else is thinking about them and has thought about them and will take care of them. My practice every Sunday morning, just, I just want to give you, I don't know, what do I do? You know, <laughs> It's like, what does he do during the week? Does he work on Sundays? Um, I love the interaction I used to have with our neighbor at 8224 Mosswood Drive. He'd go out to get the paper while I'm leaving early in the morning, and he'd say, ah, off to work. <laughs> On Sunday morning, I'll read, a, I'll read a psalm. It was Psalm 121. In eight verses, the word keep you was said six times. If you get that God keeps you, you can forget about yourself. And start worrying about keeping others. People who are kept 
by the Lord experiencing the resurrection life, they are free to warm up other people. And they love, they take joy in it, they delight in it. That's why they're so fun to be around and that's why you want them around. They are colored pegs in life. One of the great signs of the gospel growing in your life, in your home, and in your church is that encouragement is everywhere. It's the culture. So what's the culture of the home? What's the culture of your life? What's the culture of the church? I think this church has grown by leaps and bounds over the past couple years in becoming an encouraging church. In fact, some of the things that folks are saying when they're coming in now, new members, they say that stuff like that. I'm like, what? That's good news. We should be encouraged. I want to encourage all of us. What else does experience in the life of the resurrection produce in this passage? Here it is. Encouragers who are free from encouraging others based on their performance. We've all felt it. We've all done it. It goes like this. It actually has a face that goes with it. It goes like this. I just want to encourage you. Right? We've all felt that. We've been on the receiving end of that, and we've all done it, so we're all guilty here, right? Uh, It it also goes like this. That kind of encouragement is nowhere in the ballpark of what encouragement is. That kind of encouragement is condescension. It's it's hiding a superiority. I just want to encourage you. It's also very manipulative. It's a form of control, and parents are expert at this. Son, I just want to encourage you. It's trying to do the right thing. We say that kind of way. We approach encouragement that kind of way because we're trying to do the right thing, but fundamentally our heart's not encouraging. And so we're trying to say the words, we're trying to be encouraging, but your heart's not really in it because your heart is based on that person earning the encouragement. And if they're not doing a good job and not meeting your standards of why they would be encouraged or not, you're not really an encouraging person because your encouragement is based on the other person's performance and that's not encouragement. It's all about earning encouragement. It's all about you and me. They're not meeting my standards because it's really about me. That's why, come on, man, get in the game. Stop making us look bad. Eutychus fell asleep. You realize that? He fell asleep. Not on a, you know, a normal everyday preacher that comes in on a Sunday. On the apostle Paul. (laughs) You don't want to fall asleep on the apostle Paul. You know, if the apostle Paul was here, you, you don't. Everybody's, nobody falls asleep on the apostle Paul. This guy fell asleep on the apostle Paul. His death was his own fault. He earned it. He fell asleep. If Paul's encouragement was based on this young man's performance, then Paul doesn't race down the stairs. He doesn't run outside and find this broken body on the ground. And he doesn't run over, as the text says, and throw himself on the body. Bring him up into his arms, as the text says, and participate in a resurrection. 
and raise him from the dead? What characterizes your giving of encouragement? Earning it? Or is it free? No strings attached. No performance-based reality in it at all. Just like how Jesus encourages you. If you're not an encouraging person, chances are very high that you give or withhold encouragement based on people's performance. And I just want to say this last thing in terms of application. I mean, I want us all to be growing in that. Do you realize that the degree to which you grow in being encouraged by the gospel will be the degree to which you become an encouraging person, which means your encouragement is based on grace, and it's based on light pegs. You delight to light people up. Here's the last application because I, I, I want this stuff to stop in the church. So it's my law. Are you ready for the law? Even if your heart doesn't change, even if it doesn't change, stop the I just want to encourage you stuff. All right? Let's just stop that stuff. Let's not even say it. It just makes it worse. So if you, if you, if you don't have a heart change and you can't encourage somebody, it's better to not say anything than say something like that. All right. Done. How do you personally experience the life of the resurrection? How does that happen? Okay, that's what it looks like. It looks like an encourager, that kind of person, the Apostle Paul. But it looks like an encouragement that is a mini-resurrection, so it's not an encouragement based on the person's performance. It's based on the performance of another, so you're free. You're free to bring color into people's lives, right? Now, how do you personally experience the life of the resurrection for yourself? What makes you a genuine encourager? Here's the answer. Wake up to Paul's stretch. The answer is take what Paul is doing in his stretch and let it warm you up. 20 verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Bent over means to stretch over. It means to fall upon. It means to throw yourself upon. And those of you that are really familiar with the Old Testament, and particularly the giant of all prophets, a guy named Elijah, who has a very similar encounter with the death of a young man, the text says of Elijah this, he stretched himself upon the child three times. What Elijah did to that young man that died and what Paul is doing to this young man is they are stretching over him. And I guarantee you, go pick up a commentary. It baffles every commentary. Everyone's like, what does this mean? Is this some sort of prophetic gift? Is this some sort of prophetic symbol? Is this some sort of insight? What is it? And I go with a fellow PCA pastor who says, look, you're thinking way too hard. Everyone's thinking way too hard on this. Stretching's what your body does when your heart stretches When your heart wants to take someone's place, your body stretches too. Stretching is what the body does when the heart has a substitutionary element in it. Especially when a child's involved. 
I wasn't going to tell a story, but I feel like it, I, it's not to highlight me. It's just what happens. Anybody been to 8224 Mosswood? There's a huge hill back there. Our kids were very, very young. Cal was probably, what are we, seven, five, three, and one. Knox was just born. He was in the baby carriage. We have a 110-pound chocolate lab. I unstrategically tied the lab leash around my wrist in a knot so that he couldn't get away, and I'm pushing our newborn baby. And Cal has this great idea as a little five-year-old, seven-year-old, whatever. He wants to ride down a hill for the first time. So we put his little helmet on, right? And Nancy's at the top of the hill, and I'm at the bottom of the hill. He begged us. He, he did what Cal does. He wanted to do it, so he's going to do it, doggone it. And we're like, it's probably not a good idea. And I'm like, well, okay. So he goes down the hill, and I'm not kidding, 10 yards into going down the hill. His eyes are as white as they can be, and now he's screaming. Daddy, 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 right? And it's, it's about ready to happen. I mean, he's picking up speed. It's now 30 yards, 40 yards. I'm about, oh, probably 45, 50 yards down that hill. I can't do a thing. I've got a baby carriage. If I let go of the baby carriage, Nancy kills me. I would let go of the dog, but I can't because I tied the rope around my wrist. So I'm stuck. So what do you do, parent, when your child's in trouble? You stretch. Him or me, it's an easy decision. So I let him run his bike right dead center into the middle of my body. That's what hearts Right? That's what Paul is doing here for a child. It's what you would do for your child. Paul's heart and body are saying, oh God, take me instead. God sees, he hears Paul's stretched heart in his stretched body and he raises it, boy, from the dead. On the cross, Uh, Jesus stretches. On the cross, in his heart and in his body, he says, Oh God, take me instead. Their sin on me, my life on them. And God did it. So he could raise you from the dead. So you can participate in the color of resurrection life. Paul's stretch for Eutychus, or Eutychus, points to Jesus' better stretch for you. Let this comfort you. Let this cheer you. Let this instill courage in you. Don't leave it till it does. Meditate on it. Ask God to do it. Ask God to warm your heart in this. Ask God to encourage you with this. I mean, look at verse 12. Look how the whole thing ends. You want to know, what's the punchline of this passage? What's the punchline of this story? Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and there was not a little comforted. There was no little comfort from this fact. 
you've got to go back and say, my word, they preached till 12 o'clock. This event happens. You know what happens? He preached till the sun rose. How does that happen? Because everybody is animated. Everybody's excited because a resurrection just happened and they can't go to bed. They had to talk about it. So he taught more about what it meant. He taught more about a resurrection life. And the words taught have to do with proclaiming and declaring what Jesus did as well as discussing it with him. So, be comforted by Jesus' stretch for you. Be comforted. Don't leave his stretch until it warms you. And then when it does, go. Go live a life of encouraging others. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you that this is another stretch for us and we ask that you would um, stretch our hearts warm our hearts comfort our hearts with what you've done for us uh, it is actualized power in the present it's not an ar- archaeological artifact in the past that doesn't touch our lives in the present it's the power of God and we ask that you would do so in Jesus name amen okay those of